morning. Ben gave me a text that is 34 verses long, so let's begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we can uh, spend looking at your word. I pray that it'll be uh, not just educational and informative, but that it'll be enriching to our souls. It'll help us see you, your son, more clearly, uh, the beauty of his majesty, who he is, and what he did on our behalf. I thank you that Ben was willing to share the pulpit privileges, and I pray that uh, my time in preparation and practice will have been well spent, and that your people will hear exactly what you would have them hear from your word this morning. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the elders here at Prairie View, and uh, we've been studying the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark these last few weeks. Three weeks ago was Easter. We saw how the story of Jesus' ministry ended with a death and a resurrection. So we wanted to go back and look at the beginning of his life to see what led up to that point. Not just for the sake of curiosity, but to see how the story of Jesus' ministry continues in our lives today. Of the four Gospels, Mark is definitely the best for this sort of overview study of Jesus' life because he is constantly driving the narrative forward from one event to the next. Our text this morning has five scenes that work together as a group. Uh, It's sort of like a five-act play. And these, taken together, will take Jesus a big step closer to the cross. Each one of these stories has got good lessons on their own, um, but uh, taken together, they really tell a much bigger picture. It's like when a band puts out not just a good concept album, but a great concept album, where every single one of the songs can play on the radio on their own, but when you listen to the album from beginning to end straight through, you've really got something special. In chapter 1, Jesus burst onto the scene, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God and preaching, calling people to repentance. He rolled out in his ministry in a way that showed that he was continuing the work that God had begun from the beginning, but that this was a new season and a different phase of God's work. He was showing that he was rooted in the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, and that will be important this morning, but that he was also demonstrating what this new kingdom was going to be like. He called disciples, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, but above all, he had a ministry of preaching repentance, and he moved from town to town, and as he healed people, he told them to keep it quiet so that he could preach to more people. Today, Jesus turns a corner. In each one of these five scenes, Jesus is going to go out of his way to make trouble with what he says. Each time, he sets up a situation that he could have avoided in the first place, or that he could have easily diffused with a few calming words. But uh, he did not want to keep everything just the same as it was in chapter 1. Healing people and preaching a general message of repentance, that is not what he came to do. And now he's ready to turn the corner. So let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 1. If there should be a Bible near you, in the seat in front of you, or uh, scattered around the room, The slides will have verses as well, but you'll benefit from looking at your own Bible. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Thus far, the only scrap of preaching that Mark has recorded has been in the 15th verse. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here are five guys that are so desperate to get to Jesus, have such faith in his ability and willingness to heal, that they are willing to tear apart a stranger's house just to get to Jesus. This is one of those corroborating details that Mark puts in his narrative to substantiate and authenticate what he said. Because anybody who was there this day would remember the day that they were in Peter's house, listening to Jesus preach, when the dust started to fall from the ceiling. And eventually, a hole opened up. And these four guys created an opening big enough to drop down a stretcher right onto Jesus' head. Every one of those people there would be able to say, yeah, I was there that day, covered in dust. And I saw this guy now laying on the ground, looking up at Jesus with his four buddies up in the ceiling, looking down. And then I heard Jesus say the weirdest thing. Son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine the awkward silence that followed when Jesus said that. Look, Jesus, here's this guy. He's crippled. And you're talking about spiritual stuff. How is that supposed to help him walk? You're kind of being a jerk. You know what he's here for. Why don't you just heal him and fix the hole in the ceiling before Peter's wife comes home? And chapter 1, Jesus, might have done that. But chapter 2, Jesus, is going a different direction. Up to this point, people have simply been amazed with his preaching and amazed with his authority. And he even has authority over diseases and demons. Now Jesus is ready to show just how far that authority goes and where it comes from. He no longer heals for the sake of healing, but he heals to make a point. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And he is exactly right. In the Old Testament, God claims forgiveness as his own. Only God can forgive sins. It would be a complete blasphemy for any mere man to say that your sins are forgiven. So, Friday morning, I get a phone call. It's Carl Packard. Joshy, I got water in my basement. Please come help me move some furniture. Now, imagine, imagine if I had said to him, Carl, son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) The words he would have said back to me, you're not even allowed to think them in a church. And he would have been right, because that would be both offensive and outrageous. A prophet can say, your sins will be forgiven forgiven. A preacher says your sins can be forgiven. A priest says God has forgiven your sins. But God alone can say your sins are forgiven. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? This is not a trick question. It is much easier to say your sins are forgiven because it can't be verified. You say to a crippled person, rise up and walk, and there is an obvious result. It's either happening or it's not happening. But anybody can say your sins are forgiven if they dare. But which is easier to do? Forgive sins or heal the paralyzed? Which is the bigger miracle? It is always harder to solve a spiritual problem than a physical problem. Injuries can be mended. And the diseases can be managed, but only God can forgive sins. And that is exactly where Jesus is going. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man 
has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus is claiming divine authority to forgive sins, and he is using his miracles not to raise his profile and spread his fame, but to back up his words. Jesus could have made this situation go away. He could have continued, as in chapter 1, healing the guy, repairing the ceiling, and preaching, you know, if you repent, God will forgive your sins. But that is not what he does. Instead, he goes out of his way to say, hey, remember that obscure Son of Man character from the book of Daniel who has such vast authority in heaven and on earth? Well, that's me, and I have divine authority to forgive sins. It is completely unnecessary for him to say this, unless he's trying to provoke a response. That's scene one. Let's move on to scene two. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus had four disciples already. Perfectly respectable, upstanding citizens, fishermen. They grew up in Capernaum. They entered the family business. They were feeding the people with their trade. Levi was nothing like Peter and Andrew, James and John. Levi was the kind of man who would pay money to the Roman enemy occupying army, pay money to them for the privilege of collecting taxes on their behalf so that he could extract a cut for himself. Tax collectors were rightly detested for betraying their people for personal gain and violating the law as a profession. And now, Jesus says, I want you to be one of my disciples as well. Let's go to your house with all your friends and celebrate that you're going to come and follow me now. Everybody would have thought this was a terrible plan. How can we associate with him? How dare he associate with us? How can we go to his house, paid for with our tax money, and socialize with his friends who are as bad as he is or worse? And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Doctors, nurses, and EMTs don't go into medicine because they love sick people. They go into medicine because they love helping sick people get better. Every time Aaron's in the hospital, they say, We're going to get you better. We're going to get you out of here. They do not say, Aaron... Welcome back. Long time no see. It's great to see you again. We hope you stay a long, long time. No, they say you need care. We love giving care to sick people. Let's get you home. Jesus is saying the same thing. He loves sinners, but he's not content to forgive sins with divine authority from a distance. No, he goes out of his way to say, not only am I going to forgive sins, but I am going to forgive sinners and bring them into a relationship with me. He could have made this problem go away. Hey, hey. This is a one-time thing. I just wanted Levi to have a chance to say goodbye to his friends properly and maybe recruit a few of them. Because, you know, 
they're rich, and we need funding, and we got a mountaintop retreat coming up next week, and then 5,000 families are show up, and we got to feed them somehow. He could have made this go away. Or he could have avoided getting entangled with people like Levi in the first place. But no, Jesus didn't come for good Midwestern people who've only made a few mistakes and aren't really that sinful. He came for the lowest, the worst, the ickiest of sinners. People like Levi and Peter. People like me and like you. And he's not willing to leave us in our sinful condition. He didn't come just to save us from eternal punishments, to to liberate us from our sin right now. This Levi goes on to become one of the twelve apostles of the church. He ends up writing the book on how Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law that Levi himself had made a career out of violating. We know that as the Gospel of Matthew. But he started as Levi, the repentant tax collector who knew he needed Jesus, not just to forgive his sins, but to cleanse him from his sins in the present. And Jesus accepted him right into his crew, right next to all those nice fishermen, and not everybody was really thrilled with what he had done. It sounded like a mess. How is Jesus going to maintain the appearance of good moral order if he's got all these sinners running around, barely repented, and still stinking of fresh sin? How is he going to associate his good name with people like that? Scene 3, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Question draws a contrast. Religious people fast, you guys don't. What's up with that? How are we supposed to take you seriously if you don't take this stuff seriously? Let's first make sure we understand the question. Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast. Uh, The correct purpose of fasting was, and still remains, to humble oneself before God, to get on your knees before God in a physical way, to seek his favor, seek his mercy, seek his grace, and to seek his face. Denying the physical appetites heightens and sharpens the spiritual appetite that can only be satisfied by God. It's a physical representation of the humility and penitence of the soul. In the Old Testament, it was required for everybody on one special holy day each year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But the Pharisees, uh, you could could also fast on uh, personal special occasions if you had some personal reason to seek the Lord's favor. But the Pharisees had turned it upside down. Instead of using fasting to deepen their own desire for God, they were trying to use fasting to deepen God's desire for them and as a display of piety to others. Now, okay, God gave his law as a great gift to his people, and he entered into a covenant with them. And used properly, the law had three great virtues. First, it showed God's people, Israel and us, what God is like, what it is like to be holy and righteous and pure and free of sin. Second, it showed God's people that we need God because the most basic review of the law shows that we can't measure up and we fall short and we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. And lastly, the law showed what kind of life God was leading his people towards as he makes them more and more like himself. And that's how the law was supposed to work, a great gift from God that mediated the relationship between him and his people. And the Pharisees had turned that on its head. For them, observing the law And keeping the covenant was what made them acceptable to God and what maintained their standing before God. They weren't so foolish as to think they could keep 
every aspect of it perfectly, but through the system of feasts and fasts, sacrifices and offerings, the prayers and the rituals, they could deal with all that sin stuff, and they could obligate God to bless them because of how well they were keeping the covenant. This was the system God had created. They were working the system and doing a good job of it. If the law says jump this high, they were going to jump that much higher. If the law says don't go over this edge, they would take a big step back and say we're going to draw the line here instead. Now, there's wisdom in having personal hedges from sins that you're vulnerable to, but the Pharisees did wrong by making their own personal rules Binding on everybody. That was a small mistake, but the big mistake they made was the attitude of the heart, the posture before God that said, I'm okay because I keep the covenant above and beyond. Whereas the right attitude is to say, I'm not okay. I can't keep your law. Forgive me according to your promises and lead me in right paths. So John's disciples were fasting, presumably for the right reason, because they had a good teacher and John was in prison. The Pharisees were fasting for all the wrong reasons, as a a merit-based reward system, a means to an end. And then there was Jesus and his disciples, not visibly fasting at all, and certainly not going into the twice-a-week routine that the Pharisees had established, and they want to know why. If you're a rabbi, why aren't you on the fasting program? If you're calling sinners to repentance, why aren't you training them to be righteous, like us? Jesus answers, not directly, but with three metaphors. And they got the picture clearly, and I'm hoping that we will too after we look at it. He starts easy, and he gets more complicated. He got a wedding celebration, and a torn garment, and then some stuff about wine and wineskins. The common theme is going to be joy, and the lesson is incompatibility. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This part is directly for us. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Okay, Hannah and Zach are getting married this summer. Finally, right? Congratulations. And what if Mark and Nancy proclaimed Hannah's wedding day to be a day of fasting, mourning, and earnestly seeking the mercy of God? Zach would be rightly insulted because it's obvious. A wedding is not a time for somber humility and affliction of the soul before God. It's a time of joy and celebration. But what is Jesus saying? How does that answer their question? Jesus is making trouble again. He's saying that if fasting is about seeking God and Jesus' disciples don't need to fast because Jesus is with them, then he is the one that they are seeking when they fast. Stop seeking for God. I'm right here. What's more, he puts himself in the role of the groom. Old Testament prophets would routinely refer to God's people as God's bride that he sought out and gathered to himself and took to himself. And here's Jesus saying, hey, remember when the prophets would talk about God as the groom and Israel as the bride? Well, guess what? I'm the groom. I'm here. And it's time to celebrate the new relationship that I am inducting with my people and Stop searching for God. I'm right here. Don't fast because God is here to rescue his people and it's me. That is provocative stuff. But he's just getting going. The idea here was incompatibility. Can't fast at a wedding. Can't mix old and new. There's something new going on in his ministry that is incompatible with the old, worn-out way of doing things. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, 
and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You can't mix new and old fabric. They'll both tear. It'll make a bigger mess. The wineskin metaphor has another layer. There's new and old wineskins. There's new and old wine. They didn't have bottles yet, so what they used was actual skins, either the stomach or the actual hide of an animal. After they'd been cleaned really, really well, you could sew up the holes and put liquid inside, and the liquid would be preserved. So next time you're trying to match your Tupperware containers with your Gladware lids, you can be grateful. They didn't come from a slaughterhouse, and you can reuse them indefinitely because skins would wear out. They'd stretch and dry out and get cracked, and you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskin won't survive the aging process. It's done. It has run its course. So, what is Jesus talking about? In the scriptures, wine is a common metaphor for the abundant blessing of God, the joy of God's abundant blessing. Wine skins, on the other hand, they never stand for anything. That is not a metaphor that the Old Testament scriptures use. The point is the wine, not the wine skin. You give a toddler a gift on Christmas, he plays with the box. The point is the gift, not the box. The point is the wine, not the wine skin. And if the wine stands for the joy of God's blessing, then the wine skin stands for the container and the vehicle that delivers God's blessing, which in this case is the structures and forms that mediate our relationship with God. The simplistic, and I'll say the wrong way of understanding Jesus' words, is to say the old wineskins and the old wine are the Old Testament and Israel and the law. And the new wineskin and the new wine is Jesus and the cross and grace and love. And what Jesus is saying, which is the wrong view, is that we need to dump the law. Forget Israel. Get rid of all that old stuff because we are on something new and the new is incompatible with the old. And that interpretation would work, except that it's the opposite of everything the Bible says. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He preached in the synagogues. He was a rabbi. Last week when he healed the leper, he told the leper, go to the priest. Do what the law of Moses requires. Jesus loved the law, and he fulfilled it perfectly, even if the Pharisees disagreed. Now, this is critical to understanding Jesus' words. The wine, whether new wine or old wine, the wine is good. It stands for the joy of God's abundant blessing, and that is good, whether it's new or old. They're both good. The old wineskin of the law really did contain good wine. People had a thriving, rich, abundant relationship with God before the time of Christ through the law. Generations of Israelites faithfully kept the law and honored the covenant because they loved God and because they knew that it was pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah. They knew that the law was designed to be temporary. It was for a season, and it had served its purpose well, but that system of priests and sacrifices and the temple and the feasts, all that, it was for a season, and that season was drawing to a close because the coming Messiah had arrived. Jesus was here, and he was doing a new work and introducing new wine, new ways to enjoy God's blessing through the church. Things become even more clear when you bring the Pharisees into the picture. They had added to the law. They had abused the law. They had used it to justify themselves before God and separate sinners from God and from themselves. And the metaphor about the garments and the wineskins was about incompatibility. And the Pharisees were the odd ones out. They didn't fit with the old, and they didn't fit with 
the new. They ruined everything. The new work that Jesus was doing was not incompatible with the old covenant because it flowed out of and fulfilled and completed the old covenant. But the Pharisees were incompatible with both of them. They asked Jesus a question about fasting. And he could have simply said, we're not fasting until the Day of Atonement because that's all that required of us. Or he could have said, we are fasting, we just don't make a big visual production out of it because fasting is between us and God, not between me and you. But Jesus, no, he had to go much further than that. Instead, he implies through this wineskin business that he is the fulfillment of the law and the Redeemer of Israel. My disciples can't fast because their God has come to rescue them, and you Pharisees are part of the problem. You're incompatible with the old covenant, God showing his mercy through the law. And you're incompatible with the new covenant, God showing his mercy through the cross. And to the Pharisees, that was enraging. How can this man say that he is God, the Redeemer of Israel? How dare he say that we, the most zealous observers of the Torah, are incompatible with it? How can he say that he is fulfilling and completing and replacing the old covenant with a new path to God? Can he possibly mean that? Scenes 4 and scenes 5 will show that he meant every bit of it. Jesus is going to attack their two most sacred cows, the Sabbath and the temple. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, which the Pharisees would have considered harvesting, and therefore a violation of their law. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, 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 why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He could have said, Guys, you are drawing the line in the wrong place. There's nothing wrong with what they are doing. Instead, he gives them the story about David and the priests. You can study it later if you wish. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Um, The bottom line is this. David found himself in a murky situation where the law was not as clear as it might have been. And he and the priests had to get their heads together and figure out the right application of the law to their situation. Not only is Jesus going to claim that same authority for himself, but he's going to go much further than that. God gave the law to bless his people, not to oppress them. And you Pharisees, you've got the law all wrong. Not just the interpretation and application, but in your whole approach to the law in the first place. He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He could have stopped there and made a small point. We can eat this grain because we're not violating the Sabbath. It's not a violation of the law to grab a bite to eat on the way to church. But no, he has to go ten times further than that and throw it in their faces. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another huge claim of authority over the law, over its interpretation, and its application. Authority that belonged to God alone. And Jesus says, not only is the Sabbath for man, but since I have authority over all mankind, I have authority over the Sabbath too. The Pharisees had turned the law into a burden and a barrier. And Jesus is reasserting his own original authority over the law to turn it back into a blessing, correcting the wrong way the Pharisees had added to it and correcting their whole approach to the law in the first place. And Jesus knows that this claim of authority cannot be disregarded. You cannot remain 
indifferent and disengaged in the face of this sort of claim. It either needs to be rejected completely or embraced wholeheartedly. Let's see what the Pharisees chose. Chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. What a splendid coincidence. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, they might indict him, they might have something to charge him with. The Pharisees were demonstrating their true colors, the condition of their heart towards God. They were lying in wait, watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and practice medicine or whatever they thought he was doing. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He was raising the stakes. He could have easily healed this guy by winking at him or doing it remotely the next day because the next day was not the Sabbath. So no, he says, you come up here front and center. We're going to do this. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He's referring to Moses' last great speech to Israel. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, choose life. Keep the covenant. Embrace God or reject all of it. And Jesus turns it back on them. Is it breaking the law to give life? And from their perspective, they can have no answer to that because for them, it's sort of like a trick question. They were so far gone that they thought that the right way to keep the law would be to withhold life and blessing from this man and to give life to his hand would be a violation of the law. And he looked around at them with anger. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. At the end of chapter 1 last week, everybody was amazed with Jesus' healing and teaching. At the end of our text this week, the Pharisees are ready to kill him. Not in a bloodthirsty rage, but plotting and conspiring with their own political enemies, figuring out how to eliminate Jesus judicially. And that's exactly what happens. They use the law of God to put the Son of God to death. They commit blasphemy by charging the Son of God with blasphemy. Jesus could have avoided all of this. Every single one of these situations could have played out differently, but instead Jesus created these situations to sharpen and heighten his claims of authority. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this kingdom is the kind of place where there is a king, a king with all authority. And the king is like a son of man, born of a woman, and lived a righteous life and kept the law perfectly. But the king is God himself, come as a man. Not only does he have the authority to forgive sins, but he's willing to use that authority to forgive sinners and bring them into a relationship with himself. Jesus is continuing the work that God set out to do from the beginning, to reconcile a people to himself and make them more and more like Jesus, reflecting his glory with ever-increasing brightness and purity. Entrance into this kingdom is not by keeping a moral code, but by pursuing a posture of repentance that flows from faith in Jesus. Those who love Jesus and have been forgiven greatly are willing to break any barrier and leave behind everything in order to be with Jesus. And Jesus' claims demand a response. Are you going to be like Levi, overjoyed to be welcomed into God's presence? Are you going to be like the paralytic, so desperate 
to get to Jesus, even at the cost of your own dignity? Are you going to be like the Pharisees, annoyed with Jesus' claim of authority and outraged when he finds your performance unacceptable? Or are you going to be like the crowd, wavering, undecided, unmoved by his claim of authority, and unaffected by his offer of true joy? If so, Jesus is going to be coming at you, pursuing you and provoking you through this study to get you to make response, either to embrace him in faith or to reject him in hostility. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you that you have shown us not just that you are willing to forgive our sins through sacrifices and through a system of law, but that you are willing to come to us yourself as Jesus, live a life among us, to show us how it's done and to die the death that we deserve to die. And thank you that you not just have given us the old wine of the law, but you give us new wine and new ways to enjoy your abundant presence and blessing. Thank you that we can use the new methods offered as the new wineskin. Things like the Sunday morning worship service, youth group, small groups, prayer, Bible study, fasting. Thank you that we can use those things to heighten our desire for you and to deepen our love for you, your word, your people, and your second coming. Be with us, Lord, as we look forward to the day when you come again. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. If you want to know what it would look like to take the next step of submitting yourself to God's authority or to take that next step of repentance, there's going to be elders around the room. Talk to one of them. Talk to me. Talk to Ben. Talk to Jeff. We would love to talk to you.